if every person in your organization cannot tie that, those, the values that you espouse to have to the job that they are doing, if they do not understand what those values look like in action, those are not your values. Doesn't make a difference what you say they are. They're not your values. You're listening to the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast. Welcome to episode 12 of the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast slash show. I'm your host, Brittany Nicole. Today, we'll be talking with Celine Williams. Celine is the founder of Revisionary and is a culture engineer, business strategist, and speaker who helps entrepreneurs and conscious companies build strong and wildly successful businesses in a conscious, intentional, and human-focused way. I am beyond excited for you to hear this amazing and powerful interview with Celine. Celine knows what she's talking about, obviously, or she wouldn't be on the show, but we really dive in to the importance of emotional intelligence and self-awareness when we talk about company culture and what is company culture and how does it impact the way that we design and build our mission, vision, and values. So without further ado, here is Celine Williams. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Well, Celine, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you on the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence show slash podcast. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed the brief conversation that we had as I was sitting in my car getting ready to go into the dentist office <laughs> Yes, a while back. And I was like, oh my gosh, Celine's awesome. We have so much in common, especially with what we do with our businesses. Mm. So I was super excited to have this opportunity to kind of dive a little bit deeper and nerd out with you on emotional intelligence and bringing that into the organization and how you see emotional intelligence impacting organizations and how it has to do with culture and leadership and all of that good stuff. Mm -hmm. So would you mind go ahead and just starting off with telling the audience in your own words, a little bit about who Celine is and mm -hmm. where you're from. <laughs> I would love to. Um, so first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I'm really happy to be here. I love talking about emotional intelligence. Um, I am definitely here for all the nerding out that we're going to do because it's totally up my alley. Um, I am based in Toronto, Canada. Uh, so that is, um, I don't do all my work here and I've, I'm from Canada, but I've lived a few different places in my life, but I am based here currently. Um, and so I have, I'm going to weave emotional intelligence a little bit into my story. So I actually got exposed to the idea of emotional intelligence probably almost 15 years ago when I was working in corporate and when I worked in corporate. So I went into the corporate field on, I always joke it was the longest three month contract in the history of time. Cause I literally <laughs> took, I'm, I took a three month contract that lasted 11 years. So oh. <laughs> it, it's wow. uh, definitely outlived that three months, but I went in, you know, because I hadn't worked in an office before. Truthfully, I had, uh, run my own company. I started my own business. I worked for a tutoring company. Um, I'd done a few like random things, but I worked for a tutoring company, saw a great opportunity because while minimum wage for most jobs was like $7 an hour as a tutor, I was making 25 to $35 an hour. And the tutoring company 
was charging 50 to $75 an hour. So I was like, that's a profit. (laughs) Right. And I was like, this is, why aren't I just running my own tutoring company? Like I'm doing, yeah, they're booking the students, but I was doing the quote execution of the work. Right. So that was my first business. I did that. And because of that, I, I hadn't worked in an office and in my after university, a couple years after university, I had a friend summer kids don't really like going to, going to school in the summer. So it's summer was a nice downtime. Um, and so uh, I stepped into work in an office for three months to cover summertime and it lasted 11 years. And I started in an HR capacity, sort of doing HR administration type things and moved through very people focused minus project management world's worst project manager right here. Other than that, I did things like change management and stakeholder engagement and communications. And in doing those pieces, there was an opportunity to do some emotional intelligence training because it was kind of a buzzy word at the time. It was long enough ago that it was not a new concept, but businesses were just starting to talk about it a little bit. What year was Um, this? Oh, this was over 10 years ago. So probably 12 or 15 years ago now. Okay. Um, so I did the training and I thought, this is cool. I like these ideas. And it wasn't super practical. Like it was very theoretical, conceptual ideas. Um, but it kind of stuck with me And years later when I started doing coach training and doing all these other things, because part of what I do now is executive coaching. It became really relevant. I could really see the application of those ideas that I was interested in. And I'd read a lot more about emotional intelligence after that, just kind of slowly over the years, because I thought it was a cool idea. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, this makes sense. But I wasn't seeing a lot of, and this is not to say it's not out there, by the way, this is just the nature of where I was looking and what I was seeing. There wasn't a lot of really practical applications. It was, yeah. here's what emotional intelligence is, and here's what happens when you apply it. Not, how do I make this exactly. work for me? Yeah. And Things sound good in theory, but they're not very practical. Right. Yeah. And so I started to, I was interested in it. I started, when I did my coach training, I could see some of the exercises, even though they weren't talking about emotional intelligence specifically, were super applicable to whether it's recognizing your own emotions, managing emotions. It was very applicable to the concept. And so when I left the corporate space and I started my own company, um, and so what I do now, and this ties into back into the emotional intelligence is I do executive coaching and I do um, team coaching for uh, executive teams mainly, but not exclusively. And I do a lot of work in culture design. So what do you want your organizational culture to look like? And emotional intelligence is a thread in the almost every conversation with almost every person I talk to now because I've been also training and doing workshops on emotional intelligence with practical applications and exercises for the past five years, it gets woven into a lot of the work because our success and full disclosure, this is hundred percent my bias. I believe our success is dependent on our ability to communicate with other people. Yes. All things being equal you can learn to be a better programmer. You can learn to be a better finance person. You can learn to do all these things. You can also learn to be a better communicator, but your ability to, to be the best programmer is actually dependent on your ability to be a good communicator Mm -hmm. because there's just, there's another programmer who is as good as you are out there, but 
the edge that you give yourself is how do you connect with and communicate with other people? And emotional intelligence is a brilliant foundation for that entire, for your ability to communicate and for your ability to step into that, that area. So it really is something that is foundational inside of everything I talk about. And um, a lot of the language that I use comes back to what I have learned about and put into practice around emotional intelligence over the years. And what I've seen, you know, the most successful leaders I have seen hands down 100% to this day, the key element in their success is beyond self-awareness into self-insight. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So we talk about self-awareness and emotional intelligence a lot. Right. And it's, you know, an understanding of what drives us, an understanding of how we show up, what we're feeling, um, be the ability to recognize what we're feeling and thinking and the stories and we're telling, there's stories we're telling ourselves and our patterns. All of that is self-awareness. And that's really important. Self-insight to me is the next level of that. So it's when you can take that information and reflect it back into yourself to see the bigger story, to see the bigger pattern, to turn it into actionable information, into vulnerability that you use to improve and get better, not just be like, oh, I was feeling a thing, which is what a lot of people who claim to be self-aware do. They say, yeah, that's, that's, I know that about me. That's true. Right, right. That's great. Yeah. And what's the next step of that? Yeah. I love that because another thing I always tell people is behind every emotion, especially unpleasant emotions, there's an unmet need Hmm. because emotions are data. And so like you said, instead of simply labeling that emotion for what it is, asking ourselves, well, where did this come from? Why is this emotion presenting itself now? Because sometimes we may be outraged and we say, well, this was, or this is the reason that I'm outraged. But really, if we look a little bit deeper, it was all these other things that slowly built up. And then finally, we blew the top, right? And that one thing was the straw that broke the camel's back. So it's not necessarily that one thing that caused someone to have that feeling or that emotion, but it could be multiple things. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you of, often see people addressing the symptoms of the problem instead of the root cause. So how do you help individuals, especially in organizations and leadership that tend to have, let's say, type A personalities? How do you help them uncover that root cause instead of just simply placing blame or addressing the symptoms? Um. So I do have the privilege of working with leaders and organizations that are very people focused. Uh, They talk about emotional intelligence. They talk about vulnerability. That is part of the reason that I work with them is that they are already interested in doing the work. Now, that doesn't mean that they get past the symptom to the root cause any more easily than other people. Mm -hmm. It does usually mean that they're willing to be in the conversation faster. Um, I think all of us, I think the most self-insightful people, I think the people who have done the most work are often also have some of the biggest blind spots when it gets to coming, when it comes to getting into the root problem of things, because we think we know the answer 
because we can, we've seen past the first three layers of the symptoms. So we're like, we already know what it is. So part of it, and this is like a really basic old technique. It's the five whys. Most of us don't actually go past one or two, let alone three. But if you can get into the five whys, you'll often get into a new level and a new depth of insight into what's really going on and what's causing it. Another way that another technique that I use with people when we're having these conversations of people get stuck in the, I've labeled this thing. I don't necessarily want to do any more of, or I don't know how much further I want to go into the work, how much I want to delve into the world of whatever this root, the root cause of this problem might be is I bring the conversation back to um, what is your intention inside of this? What are you ultimately looking to accomplish? What is the impact you want to have? What does that look like? Because if getting into the root problem is going to help you with whatever that vision or who you want to be in the world or the impact you want to have in the world, is it, if it's going to help you move towards that, then we need to have this conversation. Right. And if that is not that important to you or there's, there's no obvious link and that's rare, then that's fine. If you want to stay in the symptom, that's fine. You don't always, it's not always the right time to dig into what those root causes are. Sometimes the awareness that there's something more is enough for now. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I, for and anyone, I, yeah, sorry, so for go ahead. Anyone, you, you brought up the five whys. Mm-hmm. So for anyone watching or listening, that's like, what's the five whys? Can you explain what are those five whys? <laughs> so it's as easy as it sounds. It is asking why five times. Um, and most of us don't do this. And it sounds absurd. What, I'm gonna, I will explain this in more depth and it's going to sound absurd. And you'll try it and you'll be like, oh, that's why people don't do it. Because it feels uncomfortable to go that deep. So it is, you know, um, I'm feeling really angry that uh, I got this feedback from my boss. Well, why are you feeling, why are you feeling that way? Because it makes me feel like I didn't do a good enough job. Why do you think that? Because every time I don't do a good job, this happens. You know, why is that, you know, now I have lost the, the, the ability to go deeper because it's not a real situation, but in a real situation, there's always five whys to get to the, to get deeper and deeper. And it is literally taking what the person says and asking the why question associated with it. So it's like being a three-year-old. It's like being a three-year-old five times. Why? 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 Five times. That's right. Now the key is not to just say why, (laughs) because why can feel like a very aggressive question, right? Like if someone says, I'm really angry about something and you go, well, why? That can, Mm, people can get very defensive very quickly if you just ask why. It's what, it's the reason that when you go through coach training, they, they try and reframe all questions as what and how questions so that people don't get defensive with why questions because why can feel judgmental Mm -hmm. and it can, and it's still the most powerful question to get to a root, a root cause of something is a why question. Because you can talk around things with a what question, and you can talk around things with a how question. How did you get there? How is it happening? How does that work? What is the reason you, I mean, we say, what is the reason you think that is a coaching question? So you're not saying why it's the same question. Um, What makes you think that? 
what happened that, that blah, blah, blah. Instead of why did that happen? Right. Or why did you think that? Yeah. Right. And, but you can talk around when it's a what question. It's much harder because why is so direct. And when you ask five direct why questions in a row, it's almost impossible to avoid the real source of something at that point in time. Because you can talk around it the first two or three times and people often will. They often will. They'll tell you the surface things because that's the first thing that comes up. And that's the first thing that comes up. And then by the fourth and fifth, they're not able to do that anymore. A really great why question that I ask a lot and I recommend for everyone, even to do self-analysis, if you're thinking of it for yourself, why is that important to me? Yeah. It's that combination of value and why in a really simple question. And it is a hard question to not be insightful about when you think about it for yourself or you, someone asks you that question. Why is that important to you? It's interesting you bring that up because I have coaching clients who are very successful, financially successful, run a great business, and they talk about the next big thing and the next big thing. And I want to get this and I want to do that. And I want to have this and said, okay, so what about that, you know, excites you? Mm. They're like, I don't know. You know, sometimes I think maybe I don't want it. I don't know if I want it or not. And how do you get them? You know, I try to separate what is expected of you from your peers, what you that pressure you feel like you have to have that nice house or you have to have that, you know, $200,000 plus car because that's what the people around you that are quote unquote successful have. But are you doing it for them? Or are you doing it for yourself? Mm-hmm. Because they kind of talk out of both sides of their mouth. They talk about the burden of having that thing, what that means and that they really don't care. But then the next minute they're talking about how they want that and need that. Mm -hmm. So how do you help people see what they truly want and separate that from what maybe they feel like they need to have to be accepted, whether that's by their C-suite or their stakeholders, you know, since we're talking about organizations, Mm -hmm. how do you get them to see what they truly want? That's a hard question because many people have not looked at or faced the reality of how much of what they think they want is actually the things that society tells them they should want Mm -hmm. or that they have taken on as part of, you know, the social contract that we all make as humans living in societies. And, um, I do, I do work inside of a program that I call Deconstructing Our Constructs to identify that. And it is first and foremost, the identification of what those constructs are that we are aware of, the ones that we might not be aware of, but that I or someone else inside of a program has pointed out. We're like, oh, wow, I hadn't even thought that that was real, but I can totally see that. Um, And this goes, and by the way, this is also how we break down biases, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is how we break down biases is by recognizing what, I mean, I call them social constructs, call them whatever you want, but we all take them on and they exist. The first step is to recognize 
and name them for what they are, full stop. If you can't name them, if you don't see them as a construct, you can never separate what you want from what you've been taught to want. Mm -hmm. And that's the big difference. Once you've named and identified what those constructs are, then, and my lens that I like to talk about is value. So if you know what your values are, not what your aspirational values are, I don't care what anyone's aspirational values are, the actual values that you make decisions from and live inside of every single day. If you know what those values are and they are in action and you know that they are your, your true values, when you run the, those list of construct or those things that you think you want through your, a value, your values table, call it you know, core values list, whatever you want to call it, and that list of constructs to see if they are yours or something you've taken on, it becomes much easier to separate out what is really driving you and is for in line with who you are aspiring to be stepping into the best version of yourself or if it's something that lines up with what you think something is supposed to look like or you think life is supposed to be like. But it's a great question and it's just, a, it's, I wish I, I don't think it's as easy as separating them. I really think yeah. it is a longer piece of work to get through that because otherwise we have, however old we are, we have that many years of filtering and conditioning yep. around what we think things are supposed to look like that we're dealing with. Exactly. And, and I love that you kind of went this direction with this conversation because the next thing that I want to talk about, and it goes so well with like what your true vision and values are is culture in organizations. Yeah. Cause I know you have spoken several things I've watched. Um, you talk about culture mm-hmm. and I think that so many organizations see the culture of places like Google and, you know, these Silicon Valley, like let's have a beer garden and let's have, you know, an arcade and all these things to make work fun, you know, and mm-hmm. let's wear jeans every day and a t-shirt. We don't care what you wear right? To kind of draw people in. But then if you don't embody something deeper than that, you're going to lose people. Mm-hmm. And I see that all the time with startups that, that kind of have this little lure in a sense, they're dangling out in front of you. Like you want to come work for us. Look at all this great stuff we have. And then once you get in there, this people centered culture is really like, very drive, 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 like metrics. We've got to crank this out. And then all those shiny things just disappear. Mm -hmm. So how do you talk to people about ensuring that their true values and mission reflects in their culture? So first and foremost, culture is never the trappings of culture that you're talking about. And the first thing I do is make sure that everyone knows that. It doesn't matter if you have 80 ping pong tables in your games room and a private chef that comes every single day to make lunch for all your programmers and you have your mission statement on the wall when you walk into the building and then your values listed as you walk down the hall, none of that matters. Those are the trappings of culture. That is what startups, and I'm picking on startups in this case because it's startups who tend to do that because they're trying to attract and retain tech talent specifically. But it's what they do so it looks like 
they ha that these are the incentives that will keep people there. And we know from what motivates people and from the, what the research tells us is those are not the things that keep people there. That's not actually what motivates people, but it's really easy to see that stuff. And because we can see it, we get hung up on it as that is what culture is. So the first thing I do is make a really, really clear that that is not in fact what culture is. Um, a couple of the things that I do is when, if I'm working with an organization or with leaders that have a set of values is we do a real true values check on what those are to see if they are aspirational or real. If every person in your organization cannot tie that, those, the values that you espouse to have to the job that they are doing, if they do not understand what those values look like in action, those are not your values. Doesn't make a difference what you say they are. They're not your values. Your values can be communication, transparency, and effectiveness. If every person in your organization cannot say, yeah, this is a very transparent organization. I feel I know as much information as I can know from the CEO down to whoever, then that's then transparency is not your real value. It might be something else, but everyone has to be able to understand it in the context of the work that they are doing, not just as an idea that exists. So that's first and foremost. The second thing is that, um, call it mission, vision, whatever you want to call it. I often refer to it just as purpose in the sense that very few people in organizations are ever going to be able to say to you, I know that my company's mission is blah, 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 whatever the language is. But if they understand the purpose of the company, and again, the real key is that they can tie the work they're doing directly to that purpose in some way. So if the purpose of my organization is to empower leaders to have better conversations, that's the purpose of my organization, then anyone who works with me inside my organization should be able to understand how their job and the work that they do ties to that purpose, whatever it is. So my assistant might be able to say, well, I free up Celine's time so that she can help those leaders have, so she's directly responsible for me being able to impact those people. So she knows the work, how the work that she is doing is tied to the purpose of empowering leaders to have more effective conversations. The coaches that I have working for me, they can see that all of the work that they're doing is impacting other people on the team that is allowing those people to have more effective conversations. So they can tie all of it. And, you know, the web designer that I'm working with, they can, they, they can see that by having a nicer website than I currently have and having, you know, <laughs> better stories on the website that then allows me to work with more leaders that, et cetera. Right. So it all ties right, to right. how can I see what I'm doing as part of the purpose, which is why the specific vision mission language. I get it's important. I'm less tied to it than I am to how are people tying themselves to the purpose that this organization, big or small, is moving towards, right? Yeah. So there, that's often the starting point. And I will say that small or large, the organizations I work with, we do a lot of work, specifically when it comes to culture around what are the, one of the companies I'm working with right now, we're calling them tenants. What are the tenants that are behind the culture of this organization? 
how do we show up? How do we work with each other? How do we interact? How do we, what are the rules of engagement for the organization as a whole? And we created a high level list of what those rules of engagement were, what the tenets were. And now we are literally doing all of the work to put them into action, to put them into examples, to put them into conversation documents so that people can now use them in their work day to day. Because many people are, but there's still variety inside of it. So we are giving them a structure. So I talk about culture like a sandbox. I'm building a sandbox. Everywhere I go, this is the, the, out, the frame of the sand, the outline of the sandbox is yeah. what I was going to say. <laughs> the frame of the sandbox. I'm, I'm attaching the wood, building the frame of the sandbox. Here's the rules. This is, this is what it looks like. Now I'm going to throw a whole bunch of sand inside of it. And you get to go in and play however you want. You want to build a sand castle in the corner? That's fine. You know where the edges of the sandbox are. You want to go and pour some water and dig around in this corner? That's fine because you know where the edges of the sandbox are. When we know what the edges of the sandbox are, we can all play effectively together so that we are building whatever in the confines of what that looks like. Culture is the, the sandbox. So we create these documents, we create these frameworks, and then we give people tools to actually use them and know how to play together. Wow. I, and I love that analogy because... I, the next thing I was about to say, I mean, it's like you're reading my mind here. <laughs> the next thing I was going to say is in organizations where, you know, in a startup of anywhere from five to 50 people, it's small enough that you're interacting with everyone, right? Yeah. And you could probably even go to the hundreds and still feel like you're close enough mm -hmm. with everyone that you know what's going on. But when you get into larger organizations mm -hmm. or even Fortune 500s, you know, I used to work for a Fortune 500. And some people loved the organization. Some people hated the organization. And it all had to do with the department they were in, mm -hmm. the manager that they had, even though that Sam, you know, like they had a sandbox, if you will, of these are our rules. But it's like, instead of a sandbox, you're, you're on the beach. And you can't necessarily right. see those rules all the time because mm -hmm. you have to really search for them right? So yeah. how do you advise people who are in organizations that are so large and very siloed that seem to have their own sandboxes within the sandbox, if you will? Does it does. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. So first and foremost, let's stop having silos in organizations. Let's just stop that. That is a very old way of working. It's It doesn't work well anymore. Things move too fast now. I don't care how big an organization is. There's no excuse for it anymore. That needs to change. I'm very, I have very, <laughs> <laughs> I have very specific thoughts on things like this because those, um, it just doesn't work that way anymore. We cannot react. Organizations of any size, the larger, even more so than the smaller, cannot react and respond fast enough when they are siloed. There's no excuse for it. If you have a siloed organizations, you, the organization, you need to look at your leadership team and figure out where that is coming from. And that needs to change. And that means different conversations. And that means a whole different layer of vulnerability and transparency than is probably happening. So first and foremost, let's stop that. Um, but there is a reality that the larger an organization gets, the more we get subcultures on teams. Mm -hmm. 
And that it doesn't even necessarily have to be because it's siloed. It's just because these are the people that you're reacting, that you're working with on a regular basis. A lot of the understanding of the rules of a culture, if you will, a lot of the understanding of what that looks like has to come from the leadership team. They have to be bought into it. They have to be living it. They have to be encouraging it. They have to be um, having the conversations that reinforce what this is, not letting things slide because it's easier to let things go than to have a difficult conversation because that is what creates the silos. That is what creates the subcultures that are then unhealthy and impossible to know where you stand inside of. Yeah. And with generational differences. Mm -hmm. So how do you address that? Because the younger generations, like my generation, the millennials, we're comfortable directly calling the CEO. We don't care. You know, it's like, you're just a human being who's had X number of years of experience, right? Like you're a person, I should be able to talk to you. I should be able to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Then you have your baby boomers who are like, no, there is a hierarchy. There are rules to this. Mm -hmm. So how do you get them to, how do you use emotional intelligence as well in that to get them to work together effectively? It depends on the organization and it depends on the appetite that they have to embrace different ways of doing things. I, it's a really unsatisfactory answer, but it does depend on that. I, um, you know, one of the organizations I work with, they know they're, they know they're my favorite organization. So I can say this because if they're listening, they know who they are. Um, they have a team that is a lot of their senior executives are Gen X. There's a couple of millennials on their senior executive team, and there's a couple of baby boomers on their senior executive team. And all of the work that we do is around vulnerability and transparency and how do you connect and open up and how do you share real stories and really truly show up. We talk about, you know, they'll use the language of, I will get calls and they'll use the language of, I am feeling really hijacked right now and I need to talk this through so I can go in and have a better conversation. Um, you know, what, I mean, they will, you know, this is the story I'm making up based on what that person said to me. They'll use language like that. And they're not all, you know, most of them are 40 and above. So right. Gen X and, and into baby boomers, it's like 40 to 60 something. But they are a people, fo- truly a people focused organization and culture. And they know that in order for people to feel safe, they have to feel understood. They have to feel heard. They have to feel like they have a voice. You cannot feel those things if you don't feel like you can speak up and connect with people. You don't feel that things. You can't have a culture of psychological safety if you feel like there is a distance and a barrier between you and someone else in the organization. And so the challenge is really those people that want the hierarchy, they don't want psychological safety and they don't want a culture that's really about the people. They want a culture that is about just do what I want, just do what I tell you to do. And that's it. That's what hierarchy is. So the challenge is really everyone on that. It's not just one person who can change that. People have to be willing to change that. If they are willing to engage in that conversation, if they recognize, and I've worked with organizations where it was 
you know, 55 to 70 plus year old executives sitting at the table who don't understand these millennials who are reaching out to them and they don't know what to do about them. And they just want to work all these flexible hours and what you just come in, you know, that was the attitude, but, or rather, and they recognized that that was not going to change. So them imposing their rules wasn't changing what was happening. They just had ridiculous turnover rate. The retention was terrible. So what we did was they said they wanted to change something they didn't know where to start. So we started with a um, reverse mentoring program. So they were paired with a younger person, millennial, let's call them, right? A 60-year-old executive with someone in the organization, mid-level or lower, who was 28. And they were paired for reverse mentoring situa- uh, conversations. So yeah, the 28-year-old or 30-year-old could come and ask this senior executive questions. However, That was not the purpose of it. The purpose of it was for the older person to actually learn and understand why these things matter to that 28-year-old, why they want that flexibility, why it's important to them. And by doing that and actually creating some understanding, they they changed how they perceived the behaviors of that generation. So it starts to it starts to affect change in bigger ways, but it, it's not just as simple as, um, uh, you know, it's not as simple as just let's open up a conversation. There are steps to be taken depending on the appetite, and it has to start with a recognition that you want something different, or that there is a problem that is specifically in this area. And I love that it's, and I hate to use the word forced, but. What it's doing is it's, it's fostering that exposure. Yes. And yes. when you get to know someone, it's very hard to dislike them. I think, I believe it was Abraham Lincoln who said, I do not like that man. Therefore I must get to know him mm-hmm. because when you get to know people, you strip away all the generalizations that, that go with that person um, and get to know them at an individual level. It's really hard to dislike people because everybody has something of value to bring to the table. Even if it's something that's very small in your eyes, but everybody, everybody has value. Absolutely. With, with understanding emotional intelligence and you know this, there's not bad people. There's negative behaviors. Yes. And when we're able to detach those behaviors in the individual that way we can focus on the person instead of their behaviors. You know, they're mm-hmm. not a bad person. Their behaviors are not necessarily productive or always um, the best approach to a situation, right? But we need to uh, see that that person has a need that potentially isn't being met. There's a reason why they're behaving in that way. And that's the beauty of emotional intelligence, in my opinion. I totally agree with you. And it's one of the reasons that I use that example is because it the ex- the senior people th- that are involved in those conversations are forced to s- are forced but they are encouraged yes. to step out of their comfort zone and to have a real conversation and to lean into the whole piece of emotional intelligence that is you know understanding other people's emotions understanding other people's you know mm-hmm. managing other people's reactions that sort of thing they're very much encouraged to step into that 
because they're stepping into a place that they're not comfortable with. But they are also forced to self-reflect inside of that because they are going to hear through the, hopefully, the empathy they are practicing, right? That piece of emotional intelligence through, by practicing empathy, they're also reflecting on their own needs and why the things that matter to them that they're trying to encourage and enforce, the structure, whatever it is, why that's so important. So the emotional, the process of emotional intelligence, those four key steps that, that we often talk about, they are vital to these conversations being productive. They are vital to the understanding that is created both between the, the younger generation and the older generation in order to find the whatever the middle ground that, that works for everyone looks like in order to foster the encouragement of understanding so that if that person wants to work from home two days a week, okay, if they're in the office, whatever that, that the, um, I'm blanking on the word, whatever the middle ground looks like, whatever the uh, solution looks like, whatever the conversation turns into, emotional intelligence and that structure enables that to happen so that it's not two people or two groups or eight groups just continuing to butt heads and refusing to see eye to eye. Right. So there's one thing I talk about, especially when it comes to perspective and reality, right? We tend to like to polarize things. This is right. This is wrong. Um, This is good. This is bad. When the majority of things is just based on your perspective, what's Mm -hmm. good for one person isn't necessarily good for another person. Mm -hmm. And I think of a man in a desert and all he can see is sand. So he says, well, the world is a vast wasteland. And then another person's on a boat in the middle of the ocean. And he's like, no, it's just vast blue water. And so instead of taking a step back and seeing the big picture, they just argue about who's right and who's wrong, but they're both right in their own Mm -hmm. perspective. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you're getting at is that instead of arguing over it, coming from a place of that understanding and realizing that we can work together and that saying two heads are better than one. Right. Um, But I think that key piece of understanding and like you were saying in the very beginning communication, you have to have that effective communication. Yeah. So I want to build on something you said there, because one of the most toxic things that we have that we hear in business and in leadership is this idea of building uh, consensus of having everyone come to an agreement. Mm. And that is a terrible waste of time. I'm going to call it what is it's a terrible waste. Collaboration to come to an agreement is a waste of time. Now, listening to other people's opinions understanding their perspective, recognizing that there's no such thing as right or wrong. There is just many different ways to do something. Some are going to have better results than others. That's all it is. Everything is gray. So when we focus on trying to find the best solution and we step out of let's collaborate until we find consensus, Mm. we are much more effective at whatever problem we're trying to solve, we're much more effective at finding the best solution to that problem. And unfortunately, because we come from a society, and this is one of those, you know, societal constructs that are out there that tells us that there are, there's such a thing as right or wrong. 
we, we then default into black and white thinking. Yep. And when we default into black and white thinking, we have to collaborate to come to one answer together because there can only be one answer because there is a right answer that we are trying to find. Right. It's a lot of time that is better spent doing something else, understanding the other perspectives, recognizing what the blind spots might be, gathering better information. There's a lot more things we can do that will get us better solutions. Agreed. Agreed. This hour went by very quickly, by the way. Um, And I know we had some small talk in the beginning, but I want to end with, um, I love the name of your company, company, Revisionary. Thank you. Revisionary. Yes. So can you, can you explain like, how did you come up with that? And what does that mean to you? And what are the values that you hold within your organization and Mm. the purpose of your organization? Mm -hmm. So the name Revisionary so the full story is that I was really struggling to come up with a name for my company a number of years ago. And I was working with a friend of mine who's a writer uh, to write some copy, hoping that that would get me to the point of inspiration. And that word was inside something that he had written. And Mm -hmm. I immediately was like, that's the name of my company because so the, 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 there's two reasons. One is the visual impact of, the word visionary with re in front of it. So there's a visual impact and there's a, if you don't look at the formal definition of the word, what people interpret and see is the idea of being a visionary again. So that is very important and a big piece of it. But also revisionary is um, like revisionist history is when you're rewriting something, when you're going back and redoing something. And I firmly believe that we are all what the work that we are doing, whatever it is, it's not just us doing it on our own. We are taking other pieces of work and ideas and combining them and mixing them and revising them. We are constantly revising what's already out there. And so that was such an important concept to me. And it has been for so long that the being a revisionary just made a ton of sense based on the, the meaning of what the, of the, the actual meaning of the word. So um, I appreciate that because it was hard earned to get to, <laughs> to get to the I name of that, that company. I love the backstory. That's awesome. That's so powerful um, too. Well, thank you. So as to sort of what, uh, what the purpose, is that what you asked? What my mm-hmm. purpose of yeah. the, um, so despite the fact that I do this work with organizations all the time, I'm really bad at actually doing it for my own company, full disclosure. Um, But I would say the, the main purpose of the work that I do consistently is to enable people to show up as the best version of themselves uh, inside of the work that they're doing and the spaces that they're playing in so that they can then enable that in other people as well. And that best version can be different day to day. And that best version is not something that I am dictating or that someone else is dictating. That best version gets to flow and change and ebb because we are all human beings who are constantly changing and growing. Um, but I see, have seen in my past too many leaders who were not encouraging that because they weren't feeling it 
because they had to be a certain way because that's what had been dictated to them because that's what they'd taken on. And so I am all about helping leaders figure out what that looks like for them and lean into that and be safe inside of that and creating cultures that enable that so that that happens for other people because the more we can be ourselves and be that best version of ourselves on a daily basis, the better work we get to do, the better we feel every day, the more engaged we are. It just, it ripples everywhere in our life. It does. Very well said. Very well said. Not to have that prepared. Good job. (laughs) Thank you. Um, It has been an absolute pleasure um, speaking with you today. I'm so glad that we could have this conversation. And I honestly think we could even do like a second round in the future because I really enjoyed this. And I think we just kind of hit just a little bit of the iceberg and there's a lot more to uncover. So I'd be happy to, this was, it was a pleasure. I'm really, thank you for having me on it. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. I really, I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. And where can people find more information about you? So they can go to my website. It's revisionary.ca. And they can, I mean, I'm on social media under that as well. And you can always email me directly if you have any questions, just Celine at revisionary.ca. I'm happy to connect with people. And LinkedIn. I always forget about LinkedIn. (laughs) I'm also there. And I will put all that information in the show notes. So that way people don't have to remember anything. They can just find it there as well. So be sure to put that there. Thank you. Thank you.